Section 15 of Jailed for Freedom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Laurel Anderson. Jailed for Freedom by Dora Stevens. Part 3, Chapter 14. The Administration Outwitted. With thirty determined women on hunger strike, of whom eight were in a state of almost total collapse, the administration capitulated. It could not afford to feed thirty women forcibly, and risk the social and political consequences, nor could it let thirty women starve themselves to death, and likewise take the consequences. For by this time one thing was clear, and that was that the discipline and endurance of the women could not be broken. And so all of the prisoners were unconditionally released on November 27th and November 28th. On leaving prison, Miss Paul said, the commutation of sentences acknowledges them to be unjust and arbitrary. The attempt to suppress legitimate propaganda has failed. We hope that no more demonstrations will be necessary, that the amendment will move steadily on to passage and ratification without further suffering or sacrifice. But what we do depends entirely upon what the administration does. We have one aim, the immediate passage of the Federal Amendment. Running parallel to the protest made inside the prison, a public protest of nationwide proportions had been made against continuing to imprison women. Deputations of influential women had waited upon all party leaders, cabinet officials, heads of the war boards, in fact every friend of the administration, pointing out that we had broken no law, that we were unjustly held, and that the administration would suffer politically for their handling of the suffrage agitation. A committee of women, after some lively fencing with the Secretary of War, finally drove Mr. Baker to admit that women had been sent to prison for a political principle, that they were not petty disturbers but part of a great fundamental struggle. Secretary Baker said, This, the suffrage struggle, is a revolution. There have been revolutions all through history. Some have been justified, and some have not. The burden of responsibility to decide whether your revolution is justified or not is on you. The whole philosophy of your movement seems to be to obey no laws until you have a voice in those laws. At least one member of the cabinet thus showed that he had caught something of the purpose and depth of our movement. He never publicly protested, however, against the administration's policy of suppression. Mr. McAdoo, then Secretary of the Treasury, gave no such evidence of enlightenment as Mr. Baker. A committee of women endeavored to see him. He was reported out, but we expect him here soon. We waited an hour. The nervous private secretary returned to say that he had been mistaken. The secretary will not be in until after luncheon. We shall wait, said Mrs. William Kent, chairman of the deputation. We have nothing more important to do today than to see Secretary McAdoo. We are willing to wait the whole day if necessary, only it is imperative that we see him. The private secretary's spirit sank. He looked as if he would give anything to undo his inadvertence in telling us that the secretary was expected after luncheon. Poor man! We settled down comfortably to wait, a formidable-looking committee of twenty women. There was the customary gentle embarrassment of attendants, whose chief is in a predicament from which they seemed powerless to extricate him, but all were extremely courteous. The attendant at the door brought us the morning papers to read. Gradually groups of men began to arrive, and cards were sent in the direction of the spot where we inferred the Secretary of the Treasury was safely hidden, hoping and praying for our early retirement. 
whispered conversations were held. Men disappeared in and out of strange doors. Still we waited. Finally, as the fourth hour of our vigil was dragging on, a lieutenant appeared to announce that the secretary was very sorry, but that he would not be able to see us at all. We consulted, and finally sent in a written appeal asking for five minutes of his precious time on a matter of grave importance. More waiting. Finally, a letter was brought to us directed to Mrs. William Kent, with the ink of the Secretary of the Treasury's signature still wet. With no concealment of contempt, he declared that under no circumstances could he speak with women who had conducted such an outrageous campaign in such an illegal way. We smiled as we learned from his pronouncement that picketing was illegal, for we were not supposed to have been arrested for picketing. The tone of his letter, its extreme bitterness, tended to confirm what we had always been told, that Mr. McAdoo assisted in directing the policy of arrests and imprisonment. I have tried to secure this letter for reproduction, but unfortunately Mrs. Kent did not save it. We all remember its bitter passion, however, and the point it made about our illegal picketing. Congress convened on December 4th. President Wilson delivered a message, restating our aims in the war. He also recommended a declaration of a state of war against Austria, the control of certain water power sites, export trade combination, railway legislation, and the speeding up of all necessary appropriation legislation. But he did not mention the suffrage amendment. Having been forced to release the prisoners, he again rested. Immediately we called a conference in Washington of the Executive Committee and the National Advisory Council of the Women's Party. Past activities were briefly reviewed and the political situation discussed. It is interesting to note that the Treasurer's report made at this conference showed that receipts in some months during the picketing had been double what they were the same month the previous year when there was no picketing. In one month of picketing the receipts went as high as six times the normal amount. For example, in July of 1917, when the arrests had just begun, receipts for the month totaled $21,628.65, as against $8,690.62 for July of 1916. In November 1917, when the militant situation was at its highest point, there was received at National Headquarters $81,117.87, as against $15,008.18 received in November 1916. Still, there were those who said that we had no friends. A rumor that the President would act persisted, but we could not rely on rumor. We decided to accelerate him and his administration by filing damage suits amounting to $800,000 against the district commissioners, against Warden Zinken, against Superintendent Whitaker, and Captain Reams, a workhouse guard. Footnote. We were obliged to bring the suits against individuals, as we could not in the law bring them against the government. End of footnote. They were brought in no spirit of revenge, but merely that the administration should not be allowed to forget its record of brutality, unless it chose to amend its conduct by passing the amendment. The suits were brought by the women who suffered the greatest abuse during the night of terror at the workhouse. If anyone is still in doubt as to the close relation between the court procedure in our case and the President's actions, this letter to one of our attorneys in January 1918 must convince him. My dear Mr. O'Brien, I wish you would advise me as soon as you conveniently can what will be done with the suffragist cases now pending against Whitaker and Reams in the United States District Court at Alexandria.
I have heard rumors, the truth of which you will understand better than I, that these cases will be dropped if the President comes out in favor of woman suffrage. This, I understand, he will do, and certainly hope so, as I am personally in favor of it and have been for many years. But in case of his delay in taking any action, will you agree to continue these cases for the present? Very truly yours, signed F. H. Stevens, Assistant Corporation Counsel, D.C. In order to further fortify themselves, the district commissioners, when the storm had subsided, quietly removed Warden Zinken from the jail, and Superintendent Whittaker resigned his post at the workhouse, presumably under pressure from the commissioners. The Women's Party Conference came to a dramatic close during that first week in December, with an enormous mass meeting in the Belasco Theatre in Washington. On that quiet Sunday afternoon, as the President came through his gates for his afternoon drive, a passageway had to be opened for his motor-car through the crowd of four thousand people, who were blocking Madison Place in an effort to get inside the Belasco Theatre. Inside the building was packed to the rafters. The President saw squads of police reserves, who had been, for the past six months, arresting pickets for him, battling with a crowd that was literally storming the theatre in their eagerness to do honour to those who had been arrested. Inside there was a fever heat of enthusiasm, bursting cheers and thundering applause which shook the building. America has never before, nor since, seen such a suffrage meeting. Mrs. O. H. P. Belmont, chairman, opened the meeting by saying, We are here this afternoon to do honor to a hundred gallant women, who have endured the hardship and humiliation of imprisonment because they love liberty. The suffrage pickets stood at the White House gates for ten months and dramatized the women's agitation for political liberty. Self-respecting and patriotic American women will no longer tolerate a government which denies women the right to govern themselves. A flame of rebellion is abroad among women, and the stupidity and brutality of the government in this revolt have only served to increase its heat. As President Wilson wrote, governments have been very successful in parrying agitation, diverting it, in seeming to yield to it and then cheating it, tiring it out or invading it. But the end, whether it comes soon or late, is quite certain to be the same. While the government has endeavored to parry, tire, divert, and cheat us of our rule, the country has risen in protest against this evasive policy of suppression, until today the indomitable pickets with their historic legends stand triumphant before the nation. Mrs. William Kent, who had led the last picket line of forty-one women, was chosen to decorate the prisoners. In honoring these women, who were willing to go to jail for liberty, said Mrs. Kent, we are showing our love of country and devotion to democracy. The long line of prisoners filed past her, and amidst constant cheers and applause, received a tiny silver replica of a cell door, the same that appears in miniature on the title page of this book. As proof of this admiration for what the women had done, the great audience in a very few moments pledged $86,826 to continue the campaign. Many pledges were made in honor of Alice Paul, Inez Milholland, Mrs. Belmont, Dudley Field Malone, and all the prisoners. Imperative resolutions calling upon President Wilson and his administration to act were unanimously passed amid an uproar. Part 3, Chapter 15 political results. Immediately following the release of the prisoners, and the magnificent demonstration of public support of them, culminating at the mass meeting recorded in the preceding chapter, political events happened thick and fast. 
Committees in Congress acted on the amendment. President Wilson surrendered, and a date for the vote was set. The Judiciary Committee of the House voted 18 to 2 to report the amendment to that body. The measure, it will be remembered, was reported to the Senate in the closing days of the previous session, and was therefore already before the Senate awaiting action. Footnote. See Chapter 8. End of footnote. To be sure, the Judiciary Committee voted to report the amendment without recommendation, but soon after, the amendments of the Suffrage Committee, provision for which had also been made during the war session, were appointed. All but four members of this committee were in favor of national suffrage, and immediately after its formation it met to organize, and decided to take the suffrage measure out of the hands of the Judiciary Committee, and to press for a vote. A test of strength came on December 18th. On a trivial motion to refer all suffrage bills to the new suffrage committee, the vote stood 204 to 107. This vote, although unimportant in itself, clearly promised victory for the amendment in the House. In a few days, Representative Mondell of Wyoming, Republican, declared that the Republican side of the House would give more than a two-thirds majority of its members to the amendment. It is up to our friends on the Democratic side to see that the amendment is not defeated through hostility or indifference on their side, said Mr. Mondell. Our daily poll of the House showed constant gains. Pledges from both Democratic and Republican members came thick and fast. Cabinet members, for the first time, publicly declared their belief in the amendment. A final poll, however, showed that we lacked a few votes of the necessary two-thirds majority to pass the measure in the House. No stone was left unturned in a final effort to get the President to secure additional Democratic votes to ensure the passage of the amendment. Finally, on the eve of the vote, President Wilson made his first declaration of support of the amendment through a committee of Democratic congressmen. During the vote, the following day, Representative Cantrell of Kentucky, Democrat, reported the event to the House. He said in part, it was my privilege yesterday afternoon to be one of a committee of twelve to ask the President for advice and counsel on this important measure. Prolonged laughter and jeers. Mr. Speaker, in answer to the sentiment expressed by part of the House, I desire to say that at no time and upon no occasion am I ever ashamed to confer with Woodrow Wilson upon any important question. Laughter, applause, and jeers. And that part of the House that has jeered that statement before it adjourns today will follow absolutely the advice which he gave this committee yesterday afternoon. Laughter and applause. After conference with the President yesterday afternoon, he wrote with his own hands the words which I now read to you, and each member of the committee was authorized by the President to give full publicity to the following. The committee found that the President had not felt at liberty to volunteer his advice to members of Congress in this important matter, but when we sought his advice, laughter, he very frankly and earnestly advised us to vote for the amendment as an act of right and justice to the women of the country and of the world. To my Democratic brethren who have made these halls ring with their eloquence in their pleas to stand by the President, I will say that now is your chance to stand by the President and vote for this amendment as an act of right and justice to the women of the country and of the world. Do you wish to do that which is right and just toward the women of your own country? If so, follow the President's advice and vote for this amendment. It will not do to follow the President in this great crisis in the world's history on those matters only which are popular in your own districts. The true test is to stand by him, even though your own vote is unpopular at home. 
The acid test for a member of Congress is for him to stand for right and justice, even if misunderstood at home at first. In the end, right and justice will prevail everywhere. No one thing connected with the war is of more importance at this time than meeting the reasonable demand of millions of patriotic and Christian women of the nation that the amendment for woman suffrage be submitted to the states. The amendment passed the House January 10, 1918, by a vote of 274 to 136, a two-thirds majority with one vote to spare, exactly forty years to a day from the time the suffrage amendment was first introduced into Congress, and exactly one year to a day from the time the first picket banner appeared at the gates of the White House. Eighty-three percent of the Republicans voting on the measure voted in favor of it, while only fifty percent of the Democrats voting voted for it. Even after the Republicans had pledged their utmost strength, more than two-thirds of their membership, votes were still lacking to make up the Democratic deficiency, and the President's declaration that the measure ought to pass the House produced them from his own party. Those who contend that picketing had set back the clock, that it did no good, that President Wilson would not be moved by it, have, we believe, the burden of proof on their side of the argument. It is our firm belief that the solid year of picketing, with all its political ramifications, did compel the President to abandon his opposition and declare himself for the measure. I do not mean to say that a many things do not cooperate in a movement toward a great event. I do mean to say that picketing was the most vital force among the elements which moved President Wilson. That picketing had compelled Congress to see the question in terms of political capital is also true. From the first word uttered in the House debate until the final roll call, political expediency was the chief motif. Mr. Lenroot of Wisconsin, Republican, rose to say, May I suggest that there is a distinction between the Democratic members of the Committee on Rules and the Republican members in this, that all of the Republican members are for this proposition? This was met with instant applause from the Republican side. Representative Cantrell prefaced his speech embodying the President's statement, which caused roars and jeers from the opposition, with the announcement that he was not willing to risk another election with the voting women of the West, and the amendment still unpassed. Mr. Lenroot further pointed out that from a Republican standpoint, from a partisan standpoint, it would be an advantage to Republicans to go before the people in the next election and say that this resolution was defeated by Southern Democrats. An anti-suffragist tried above the din and noise to remind Mr. Lenroot that three years before Mr. Lenroot had voted no, but a Republican colleague came suddenly to the rescue with, What about Mr. Wilson? which was followed by, He kept us out of war, and the jeers on the Republican side became more pronounced. This interesting political tilt took place when Representatives Dennison and Williams of Illinois and Representative Kearns of Ohio, Republicans, fenced with Representative Raker of California, Democrat, as he attempted, with an evident note of self-consciousness, to make the President's reversal seem less sudden. Mr. Dennison, it was known by the committee that went to see the President that the Republicans were going to take this matter up and pass it in caucus, was it not? Mr. Raker, I want to say to my Republican friends upon this question that I have been in conference with the President for over three years upon this question. Mr. Kearns, how did the women of California find out and learn where the President stood on this thing just before election last fall? Nobody else seemed to know it. Mr. Raker, they knew it. Mr. Kearns, how did they find it out? Mr. Raker, I will take a minute or two. Mr. Kearns, I wish the gentleman would. 
Mr. Raker. The President went home and registered. The President went home and voted for woman suffrage. Mr. Kearns. He said he believed in it for the several states. Mr. Raker. One moment. Mr. Kearns. That is the only information they had upon the subject, is it? Mr. Williams. Will the gentleman yield? Mr. Raker. I cannot yield. Mr. Williams. Just for a question. Mr. Raker. I cannot yield. That the President's political speed left some overcome was clear from a remark of Mr. Clark of Florida when he said, I was amused at my friend from Oklahoma, Mr. Ferris, who wants us to stand with the President. God knows I want to stand with him. I am a Democrat, and I want to follow the leader of my party. And I am a pretty good lightning-change artist myself sometimes. Laughter. But God knows I cannot keep up with his performance. Laughter. Why, the President wrote a book away back yonder and he quoted generously from President Wilson's many statements in defense of state rights as recorded in his early writings. Mr. Hersey of Maine, Republican, drew applause when he made a retort to the Democratic slogan, Stand by the President. He said, Mr. Speaker, I am still standing with the President, or, in other words, the President this morning is standing with me. The resentment at having been forced by the pickets to the point of passing the amendment was in evidence throughout the debate. Representative Gordon of Ohio, Democrat, said with bitterness, We are threatened by these militant suffragettes with a direct and lawless invasion by the Congress of the United States of the rights of those states which have refused to confer upon their women the privilege of voting. This attitude on the part of some of the suffrage members of this House is on an exact equality with the acts of those women militants who have spent the last summer and fall while they were not in the district jail or workhouse, in coaxing, teasing, and nagging the President of the United States for the purpose of inducing him by coercion to club Congress into adopting this joint resolution. Shouts of, well, they got him, and they got it, from all sides, followed by prolonged laughter and jeers, interrupted the flow of his oratory. Mr. Ferris of Oklahoma, Democrat, hoped to minimize the effectiveness of the picket. Mr. Speaker, he said, I do not approve or believe in picketing the White House, the National Capitol, or any other station to bring about votes for women. I do not approve of wild militancy, hunger strikes, and efforts of that sort. I do not approve of the course of those women that become agitators, lay off their womanly qualities in their efforts to secure votes. I do not approve of anything unwomanly anywhere, any time, and my course today in supporting this suffrage amendment is not guided by such conduct on the part of a very few women here or elsewhere. Applause Representative Langley of Kentucky, Republican, was able to see picketing in a fairer light. Much has been said pro and con about picketing, that rather dramatic chapter in the history of this great movement. It is not my purpose to speak either in criticism or condemnation of that, but if it be true, I do not say that it is, because I do not know, but if it be true, as has been alleged, that certain promises were made, as a result of which a great campaign was won, and those promises were not kept, I wonder whether in that silent, peaceful protest that was against this broken faith, there can be found sufficient warrant 
for the indignities which the so-called pickets suffered, and when, in passing up and down the avenue, I frequently witnessed cultured intellectual women arrested and dragged off to prison because of their method of giving publicity to what they believed to be the truth, I will confess that the question sometimes arose in my mind whether when the impartial history of this great struggle has been written, their names may not be placed upon the roll of martyrs to the cause to which they were consecrating their lives in the manner that they deemed most effective. Mr. Mays of Utah was one Democrat who placed the responsibility for militancy where it rightly belonged when he said, Some say today that they are ashamed of the action of the militants in picketing the Capitol, but we should be more ashamed of the unreasonable stubbornness on the part of the men who refuse them the justice they have so long and patiently asked. And so the debate ran on. Occasionally one caught a glimmer of real comprehension amongst these men about to vote on our political liberty, but more often the discussion stayed on a very inferior level, and there were gems imperishable. Even friends of the measure had difficulty not to romanticize about woman, God's noblest creature, man's better counterpart, humanity's perennial hope, the world's object most to be admired and loved, and so forth. Representative Elliot of Indiana, Republican, favored the resolution because, a little more than four hundred years ago, Columbus discovered America. Before that page of American history was written, he was compelled to seek the advice and assistance of a woman. From that day until the present day, the noble women of America have done their part in times of peace and of war. If Queen Isabella was an argument in favor for Mr. Elliot of Indiana, Lady Macbeth played the opposite part for Mr. Parker of New Jersey, Republican. I will not debate the question as to whether in time of war women are the best judges of policy. That great student of human nature, William Shakespeare, in the play of Macbeth, makes Lady Macbeth eager for deeds of blood until they are committed and war is begun, and then just as eager that it may be stopped. Said Mr. Gray of New Jersey, Republican, A nation will endure just so long as its men are virile. History, physiology, and psychology all show that giving women equal political rights with man makes ultimately for the deterioration of manhood. It is, therefore, not only because I want our country to win this war, but because I want our nation to possess the male virility necessary to guarantee its future existence that I am opposed to the pending amendment. The hope was expressed that President Wilson's conversion would be like that of St. Paul, and that he will become a master worker in the vineyards of the Lord for this proposition. Applause. Mr. Gallivan, Democrat, although a representative of Massachusetts, the cradle of American liberty, called upon a great Persian philosopher to sustain him in his support. Dogs bark, but the caravan moves on. Democracy cannot live half free and half female. Mr. Dill of Washington, Democrat, colored his support with the following tribute. It was woman who first learned to prepare skins of animals for protection from the elements, and tamed and domesticated the dog and horse and cow. She was a servant and a slave. Today she is the peer of man. Mr. Little of Kansas, Republican, tried to bring his colleagues back to a moderate course by interpolating, it seems to me, gentlemen, that it is time for us to learn that woman is neither a slave nor an angel, but a human being, entitled to be treated with ordinary common sense in the adjustment of human affairs. 
but this calm statement could not allay the terror of Representative Clark of Florida, Democrat, who cried, In the hearings before the committee it will be found that one of the leaders among the suffragettes declared that they wanted the ballot for protection, and when asked against whom she desired protection, she promptly and frankly replied, Men. My God! Has it come to pass in America that the women of the land need to be protected from the men? The galleries quietly nodded their heads and Mr. Clark continued to predict either the complete breakdown of family life, or they, man and wife, must think alike, act alike, have the same ideals of life, and look forward with like vision to the happy consummation beyond the veil. God knows that when you get factional politics limited to husband and wife, oh, what a spectacle will be presented, my countrymen! Love will vanish while hate ascends the throne. Today, woman stands the uncrowned queen in the hearts of all right-thinking American men. To her as rightful sovereign, we render the homage of protection, respect, love, and may the guiding hand of an all-wise providence stretch forth in this hour of peril to save her from a change of relation which must bring in its train discontent, sorrow, and pain, he concluded desperately, with the trend obviously toward crowning the queens. There was the disturbing consideration that women know too much to be trusted. I happen to have a mother, said Mr. Gray of New Jersey, Republican, as most of us have, and incidentally I think we all have fathers, although a father does not count for much any more. My mother has forgotten more political history than he ever knew, and she knows more about the American government and American political economy than he has ever shown symptoms of knowing, and for the good of mankind as well as the country, she is opposed to women getting into politics. The perennial lament for the passing of the good old days was raised by Representative Welty of Ohio, Democrat, who said, The old ship of state has left her moorings and seems to be sailing on an unknown and uncharted sea. The government founded in the blood of our fathers is fading away. Last fall, a year ago, both parties recognized these principles in their platforms, and each candidate solemnly declared that he would abide by them if elected. But lo, all old things are passing away, and the lady from Montana has filed a bill asking that separate citizenship be granted to American women marrying foreigners. Representative Green of Massachusetts, Republican, all but shed tears over the inevitable amending of the Constitution. I have read it, the Constitution, many times, and there have been just seventeen amendments adopted since the original Constitution was framed by the master minds whom God had inspired in the cabin of the Mayflower to formulate the Constitution of the Plymouth Colony, which was made the basis of the Constitution of Massachusetts, and subsequently resulted in the establishment of the Constitution of the United States under which we now live. Fancy his shock at finding the pickets triumphant. Since the second session of the 65th Congress opened, he said, I have met several women suffragists from the state of Massachusetts. I have immediately propounded to them this one question. Do you approve or disapprove of the suffrage banners in front of the White House? The answer in nearly every case to my question was, I glory in that demonstration. The response to my question was very offensive, and I immediately ordered these suffrage advocates from my office. And again, the pickets featured in the final remarks of Mr. Small of North Carolina, Democrat, who deplored the fact that advocates of the amendment had made it an issue, inducing party rivalry. This is no party question, and such efforts will be futile. It almost equals in intelligence the scheme of that delectable and inane group of women who picketed the White House on the theory that the President could grant them the right to vote. 
amid such gems of intellectual delight the house of the great american congress passed the national suffrage amendment we turned our entire attention then to the senate end of section fifteen recording by laurel anderson sanford florida